competitive 40k network presents art of war art of war strategy and tactics discussions with the best players on the planet on the planet with your host paul murphy and expert coach nick nanavati Hey everybody, welcome to the Art of War podcast. My name is Paul Murphy, your host. It's just me and Nick Nadavati today. Nick? Hey Paul, the original duo this time. I know. Welcome to the show. As always, it's a pleasure. This is part one of a two-part episode. If you want part two, go check it out. Check us out on Patreon. We're going to be talking about very similar format. We're going to be talking about a list that you've taken, how you're getting back into also playing competitively. Uh, Maybe we'll share a little bit of that, uh, the journey along the way here. And kind of help folks that maybe have, you know, life has gotten in the way, other things have gotten in the way of the hobby and participating on the competitive side, you know, like we talk about each and every week. And I think it's going to be a great topic conversation. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, I'm super excited. It's it's funny. I find myself doing pro Warhammer and being more involved in Warhammer than ever in my life and competing even less. So it felt really good to get back out there, compete in an event, do uh, pretty well with my Eldar army. I really loved it. <laughs> well, you know, us talking about Warhammer, uh, you know, does sometimes we're talking when we would like to be rolling dice and playing in this but really anything can get in the way of a hobby sometimes yeah i mean i think this episode is going to be pretty applicable for anyone who's had life get in the way or just a, you know an up and down relationship with warhammer and then at some point they come back into the game or they try to come back in the game and they're like maybe overwhelmed by the state of the meta and what they have to learn the knowledge gap and where to even go from here with building their army hopefully my experiences will be able to help with that yeah i hope we can actually like determine that some of the things never go away. Like you might have, sure, you might have been on the shelf for a little bit, like your models. You calling me a shelf warrior over here? I am not a Space Marine box dreadnought, Paul. <laughs> I mean, one might feel like they're on the shelf, <laughs> but no. they're. There are some things that you kind of, like if you're comfortable moving models around or whatever, it's sometimes a little bit easier than they might think to get back into it, but it is more complicated. There are things that you learn that that are, if you have them kind of at the top of your mind, easier to access, then maybe that impacts the the, how quickly you get back to the similar success you had before. Well, definitely. There's some 40k skills, which I think are just like fundamentals. Like I have a pretty good gauge for measurements between one and 48 inches you know what a useful skill in the world where you can pre-measure i got my dice rolling hand ready to rock and roll i mean (laughs) what else do you need (laughs) that's right the good flick of the wrist um it is you bring up a good point though it's very satisfying sometimes when you don't have to guess but yet you just know the range like oh that's a six inch charge you know yeah for sure well i think there's a whole element to a lot of players don't make use of pre-measuring nearly as much as they should but maybe that's a topic for a different time (laughs) well we always talk about some of the things that you should do. And that's another thing. Look, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but there are some things that you can put yourself into a routine and that will help you get back into it, like ritualizing everything. And even if you have not you know, moved your models in around for a results-driven outcome recently, it might be easier for you if you just, you know, t- take to heart some of the things we talk about on this show. Definitely, definitely. We're, this show's here to help, try to help you. So hopefully you guys get some knowledge out of this. Yeah, so okay, let's let's start from the very beginning. Uh, why did you want to get back into it? Well, all right, so just to give some background, um, for those who haven't been following, Paul and I have also done the commentary for the GamesWorks US Open series all throughout the year, many of which those guests have come on the show for various episodes throughout the season as well. And... You know, you get you get some FOMO when you're sitting there in the commentator booth watching some like world championship level Warhammer, and you're just sitting here watching. Especially like me personally, I used to be the guy at the top tables dominating stuff, and you know now I'm the guy talking about people who dominate stuff. So I definitely had a like being surrounded by it, wanted to get back into it kind of thing going on. Still do. Yeah, it's also when you know as factions kind of come up and down, or what might be what considered the top, and there's a lot that goes into the top. By the way, sometimes it's rules. Sometimes it's, you know, skill and sometimes it's just the environment, the meta, as it were, kind of makes things a little bit better. But, you know, let's just say when your favorite faction is one of those top contenders when piloted by a skilled pilot, you kind of also want to be drawn back into it. Definitely, definitely. And there's like the competitor of me also just wants to, the game's changed a lot. And since, um, let's see, I won LVO in like 2018. 
couple events thereafter. And then I really got deep into Art of War and the commentary and COVID happened. That's really when I kind of took a break from competing. And the game has changed a lot. The average player is a million times better than they used to be. I hear a million people say that. The event community space, we always talk about that, but the, the community around 40K is healthier than it's ever been. There's a lot of new blood in the arena, which I really wanted to try my hand against. It has been cool. You know, people can go back and look at it. There's, it's just their first time joining us. We, we normally have a winner from a recent tournament or second place type of thing from a recent tournament on to talk about their success. And, you know, you, t- you mentioned like the, the, the fact that the skill level is higher now than it has been in the past. You know, we're talking to pl- people that, you know, I've never met before. I've been to lots of these tournaments. And, and you know, I guess a couple of years ago, I would assume that I knew 80 to 90% of the community and that the amount of people that I knew like on a first name basis is now like 50%. Yeah, I'm the same way. Like you and I have both been playing this game for give or take 20 years, if not more. And that people, you know, some have come, some have gone, but a lot of new blood in the pool, like we're saying. Yeah. So if you're on, like you've been on the fence about doing it or you haven't done it and want to get back into it, these are both very valid things. It's a great community. We have a great time doing it. That's why we talk about it. But now we're going to kind of get into like how you do it. Like how, what are some things that you can do uh, to maybe, I don't want to say knock the rust off, you know, because of course, always sharp. Always sharp as attack, Paul. <laughs> but you know, as as we can, there are, there are these kind of barriers that I think that it's, it becomes easier for us the the longer that we're away from it to put up for ourselves, and maybe how to remove some of those barriers. I think a big challenge I faced was probably around like April, May, and on onward. Since then, I've been like. Maybe not as sharp as I would like to be with regards to reading all the codexes they come out, um, knowing what's on the up and up as far as all the latest builds and innovating on them. And it felt relative to where I had kind of held myself as far as my understanding of Warhammer, I'd fallen a little flat on that side. So the the knowledge gap, you know, every time I don't read a codex when as soon as it comes out, another one releases. We live in a world where we get 12 codexes in a year. So, you know, you take three, four months off of reading books, and then all of a sudden, wow, I'm four armies behind. The meta is totally different. There's a balance update. And how do I even begin to unpack it? Everything's broken according to the internet. So, like, what's my poor army going to do? <laughs> Step one, uh, don't believe everything you hear on the internet. Yeah. Unless you heard it from Art of War, right? <laughs> well, we're, hey, we're bringing up facts. You know, like actual facts you can take to the bank. Uh, but speaking of facts, is that you also like to play what I consider lists that are on maybe like the higher end of the learning curve. Things where uh, less forgiving armies. Yeah, well, well, thank you for that. I don't know. It's uh, I like to... I, I get some sort of sick, twisted enjoyment from feeling like I've beaten my opponent in Warhammer, feeling like I played my best game and really outthought my opponent in a strategy-based battle. Um, and I really don't like to rely on my ability to write a list that my opponent could not handle by the time he got to the tabletop. And there's nothing wrong with it. To each their own with how they enjoy the hobby. Some players like to stat check their opponent. Like, here's my 13 war dogs. I played against three Chaos Knight armies and a total of 30 war dogs over the weekend. And, uh, well, there's tactics to be used. There's strategy to that army. I don't want to pretend there isn't. But there, there is an element of my list is just so mathematically good at what it does that your army can't handle it. Whereas my army is, my armies that I try to create try to focus a lot more on movement-based abilities instead of toughness or offense. So did the fact that some of that stuff, you know, we're talking about like Eldari and, you know, the, the tough, a lot of toughness three armies. Yeah, definitely. Like Eldar, I, I like to mess around with the not monster mash versions of demons, just anything like weird and janky. I like that kind of stuff. What I, uh, what I think I really struggled with was when going back to this tournament, um, you know, I, I knew a lot of top competitors were going to be there. And getting ready for it, I kind of decided what army I was going to play. Like, I have a privilege to be able to pretty much pick and choose between any faction at this point. It's what happens when you play this game for a long time, I guess. And you get kind of indecision paralysis, or at least I did, where it's like, do I try to chase the meta, come up with the, the latest version of the, of the most broken codex type of thing, and, and just play my best game with it? And, you know, that'd be something like Tower Tyranids as, as I look at it. But, you know, neither of those armies are really speaking to me at this moment. I played both in the past, but right now I'm really been enjoying my Eldar. And I really just wanted to go out there and play some of my best 40k that I could produce with an army I really enjoyed. And I found that to be a lot healthier than meta chasing. Like as someone who has to do 40k for a living, for the work-life balance definitely becomes a thing. So make sure you enjoy it when you do it for recreation. <laughs> 
Well, you know, we make, you know, t- kind of tongue in cheek talk about filthy meta chasers from, from time to time, which again, sometimes it is, it's kind of fun, especially when it's like a new army or a new twist on something and it looks cool and is powerful. Why wouldn't you want to play it? There's really no yeah. wrong way to go about doing it. And Look also something, you know, that we'll highlight over all these shows is that the player playing it has a lot to do with the success of the army. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I also look at it like I could hop onto a really new, awesome, shiny faction that's really powerful, but I'm now a faction expert master at that where people already are because, you know, there are dedicated astro-militarian players there, dedicated Tau players, dedicated Tyrion players. So, you know, why would I try to play their game when I can play my game? Because I've been playing Eldar for the better part of a year, really pushing that faction to as far as I can take it and trying to push those boundaries all the time. So, you know, why not? put all that hard work and effort to use and this is no knock on like net listing or anything either like i'm a big uh proponent of that because what it helps you do is kind of save you some time you get to kind of stand on the shoulders of giants as it were and save all that development time to just maybe get a template and then refine it to your own play style so by all means take list yeah. use list especially when they've got success behind them but we also sometimes see that sometimes that you know players if they don't get intimately familiar with what the list can do will not be able to replicate the success of those those players. I think there's an element to um, being good at your 40k fundamentals, as Jack likes to put it. Jack is someone who is one of our hard work coaches. He has army ADD. He switches factions week by week by week and somehow does amazingly well with them. And really, he just understands the game 40k at such a deep level that it's learning the nuances to a faction that he's already mostly familiar with because he has to be to compete at this level. Um, it's, It's something he can apply to faction after faction after faction as a 40k fundamental. So there's there's like skills like being good at a specific list, and then there's skills at being good at Warhammer, and that's really what we try to teach here, and what I try to focus on. I'm glad you're going that direction because I want to talk about the fundamentals pretty soon, you know. But just as an example of that, you know, changing list on list, and then also having a good kind of group of people you can bounce some ideas off of, and and then nothing kind of replaces getting some reps in uh, with those the factions of the list or the concepts or whatever. Yeah, I mean that's another huge part to getting back into the game or just even keeping up with in the first place is you got to have friends who play um and hopefully you can play with them on relatively regularly you know we we didn't actually get as much time as you would think to play 40k recreationally i pretty much do it a lot of commentary and work around 40k so getting practice games when practice is the same as just adding three hours to your workday is not the easiest thing to do um there are days where i'm like getting off the warhammer video and i'm like the last thing i want to do right now is play warhammer but it's important to have friends and teammates and anyone you can surround yourself with local game store buddies garage buddies that just help you bounce ideas off of maybe there's a certain discord that people might want to take advantage of yeah we actually do in case you live in one those regions that might be geographically challenging if you subscribe to part two of this podcast you also get some excellent content the war room any of that stuff you also get access to a discord channel with all of the world's best players and a lot of players who are just focused on getting better in a really positive healthy space yeah so again we're, we're talking a lot you know about the lead up of everything and uh some of your practice games actually make it on the stream so you know that's true i get i get the the luxury of getting all of my mistakes scrutinized by the world so there's also that um it's cool though it's cool uh, look we're gonna get to this again maybe if it's not in part one and part two but like don't be afraid of losing you know there's that is i lose ch- like 90 percent of my practice games i mean now i put it on tv so the world knows but well i mean really I, really though if you're not losing games every now and then, you're not playing the right opponents. I like to practice as if it's harder than the tournament. Things that are swingy, like, a, you know, who hasn't played that practice game when, like, everything's going sideways, your opponent's really putting it to you, it's a tough game, and then their vehicle explodes and it kills their key character and all of a sudden you're back in it. Let's say their vehicle didn't explode because it kind of ruins, like, if it explodes in a tournament, take advantage of that. But you don't need to practice taking advantage of a vehicle explosion. You need to understand what happens most of the time and make a plan for it. Uh, we could actually do a whole episode about how to effectively practice, like how to really, really test, play test your list instead of just being subject to the dice. Uh, so Maybe we should. Yeah, it's a great topic. Um, <laughs> so expect that coming pretty soon, folks. But let's actually bring up the list or talk about the list if you can that you took recently, because, you know, I actually, I'm going to be hearing it for the first time right now because I really, really want to critique it to see if you maybe fell back to maybe what might be more comfortable or safer choices or you still on the, the bleeding edge here. Well, I wanted to try something different to my last Elder list, which was a Halo of Doom style. So I went for another custom craft for 
world. I won for Swift Strikes and Masterful Shots. This one's kind of more commonly seen in Europe and a little bit in Australia. It's not actually very popular in the States. I learned about it when I ventured off to WTC in Belgium earlier this year. Uh, I think Chris Wright from Australia, who actually had on fairly recently to talk about his Inari victory, uh, he was piloting a list very similar to this, and it kind of inspired my direction. But the whole combo here is we can uh, advance and shoot and count as stationary through the shooting phase, so you can advance and fire your heavy weapons and no penalty. And uh, the way they're ruling it, and not not just this event, but I believe uh, this is how WTC ruled it and how Games Workshop is ruling it at their U.S. Open series, is you can battle focus... Um, after you do this advanced rule, in the case of Swooping Hawks, you can actually teleport as well. So the whole thing is I have 20 Swooping Hawks we'll get to. With a Fate Die, I can auto-advance them 20 inches, maybe Mortal Wound fly over something with the Stratagem, shoot a million shots, and teleport right back to safety. And then the whole army nurse cover is the other part to it. So kind of going through it top to bottom, it's double patrol. I have a lot of psychic support, three Farseers. Two of them are Skyrunners. One of them is on foot. Um, the one on foot has Guide and Focus Will. One of the ones on Skyrunners is Doom and Fateful Divergence. The other one is Will of Osrian and Ghostwalk. Then I have two Warlock units. One is a Conclave, two-man with Quicken and Restrain. I go for the Conclave because I love to use a Fate Dice on that Quicken. And then if I happen to roll another six in Perils and kill myself, my whole army is going to fall apart. So having fourth wound in the unit really helps mitigate the opportunity to perils with eight dice. And I have a Warlock Skyrunner with Protect and Jinx. He's a classic staple unit. For my two troop squads and one in each battalion, I've gone for a singular unit of five Rangers and a unit of 20 Guardians. Love that unit. We talk about that a lot. <laughs> I'm sure you got some questions on that one. Um, for the Elites, we had two units of five Banshees. One's got the classic piercing strikes, mirror swords, all the good stuff. The other one's gone for Crone Scream, so she does some mortal wounds when they charge. Uh, Banshees ignore Overwatch, and I figured Flamers are a really good unit these days, so I ignore yeah, Overwatch. I've heard that somewhere. Yep. Yeah, so someone says that somewhere. Um, and then Unit of Five Striking Scorpions with Biting Blade and Crushing Blows. That's just how you run Scorpions. They're one of the best units in the game. Two units of nine Swooping Hawks. Um, one has the Phoenix Plume Winged Evasion for minus one to hit and feel no pain. The other one is Bare Bones Naked. But the, they kind of form the, I don't even want to say center of my army because they're so all over the place, but they're the core to my army, I suppose. Um, unit of three Shroud Runners, also to round up that fast attack slot. A 10 man Avenger unit and a Wave Serpent with just some scatter lasers. And finally, a good old fashioned Webway Gate. No, so yeah, I don't see a single comfortable choice here. I mean, outside of Baharoth, but he's in basically every Aldari list. Oh yeah, did I? I forgot to mention Baharoth. <laughs> you know, he's he's got to be here. You can't, he's a foregone Look, conclusion. Everyone knew he was there. It's fine. <laughs> there was a moment where I thought about cutting him, and here he is. Look at that. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so we can actually talk about that in part two about how to innovate and then when to kind of break the mold, as it were. And but there are some really solid choices in in the factions, and you know. It's kind of cool that they're set up the way they can be in multiple craft worlds and not be a big deal. But yeah, let's actually jump back to a couple of these choices. And of course, I was just kind of kidding with you. You know, any any list is good, but uh, you know, there there are still we're kind of relying on that toughness three frame uh, and then using the the skill of the of yourself and the kind of the mobility of the army. Yeah, so it's kind of funny that you and, and many other people have shown this list for like, this is such a special snowflake, Nicholas, what the hell is going on here? And I can see why you would say that now that people are saying it. When I wrote this list, I really just was in my head making very logical solutions to the problems I was theorizing while list writing. And that's kind of how I approach it in the first place. But basically, the first thing I kind of went with is when I make the decision of playing Eldar. I have to accept that my army is made of tissue paper and there ain't no durability, protect and fortune I can throw on to pretend it's not paper anymore. The game is so lethal. The leagues of OTAN just auto wound Astra Militarum, the new codex, ignoring female pains and just raining mortals and all that chaos space. Means, have you seen their characters? Like you're just going to die if they touch you. <laughs> and then, and then there's demons, you know, flamers are everywhere. The bloodthirsters ignore everything. Like Scarbrand, who's he? So I just kind of reached the conclusion that instead of focusing at all on defense and things like that, I pretty much wanted to focus on the things I was good at, which is moving really fast, shooting people and leaving. That's the guiding principle for the entire army. And you actually, you've got a bunch of psychers in here, and that's something we've seen kind of, I guess, dial up as the meta 
continues to mature. Like I don't think there were five psychers in maybe in the in the beginning with Eldari List. No, what I found is I like to run two far seers, honestly, because there's a lot of points in psychers. Um, but I find in this Swiss strikes and masterful shots thing, one of the things that your army is built upon is, for damage is, if you'll notice, I don't have any real anti-tank, right? I have, and I played against three Chaos Knight players, and they're all like, do you have any anti-tank? And my response was all the same. I have like, I have a billion bullets. You got 20 guardians? Come on, what do they want? Oh, but yeah, it's 40 shots off my guardians, 36 shots off of each hawk unit. Eight, 21 shots off my Shroud Runners, 33 shots on my Avengers. You can see how it adds up. And then I got all the Hawks have 60 to hit auto wound. Guide is reroll hits. Home Army Strength 4. If you're not Toughness 8 or higher, I'm wounding you on 5s with over 150 shots. Doom is reroll wounds. You got a 2-up save? Well, I cast Jinx on you. Now you have a 3-up save. Take 100 saves. So my damage is really stackable because when you give 40 shots reroll hits it's a lot it's really powerful when you get 40 shots reroll wounds it's awesome and i just kind of use that principle across time to really do my damage because the whole thing with hawks and dire avengers and a wave serpent that they can you know start in and then get out and battle focus behind terrain and fire and fade and all that hawks teleporting back and forth is that I am going to get as many shooting activations as possible because I shoot you and I don't stand there. I take and not trade. I shoot you, I go back to safety. I shoot you next turn, I go back to safety. And just rinse and repeat this process. So it's damage over time instead of burst damage all at once is really what this army is trying to do. And when I do need to do burst damage all at once, doom something, jinx something, guide my hawks, it'll die. Yeah, that sounds... That sounds strong. Doom is another one of those powers that if for some reason one is not taking Doom and you're playing Eldari or Janari or, or something that can take a Doom, then you know, you really need to ask yourself why. Yeah, I guess it, you know, to answer your actual question is why do I have all these psychers? It's because you gotta have Doom, you gotta have Guide. We just covered those. So you can put that on one farce here. But you really want to do like um, psychic ritual or psychic interrogation with this army when you get down to your secondary choices. So that's another psyker because you don't want to, you're obviously not casting guide, doom, and ritual with the same dude. And then you look at your other powers and you really want focus will because plus two to cast and die helps you dominate the psychic phase and make sure your stuff goes off. And then you have, sometimes you want to put focus will on the guy casting psychic rituals because if he's going to be in deny range, you really want it to go off and not be denied. So that's, then you want things like obsec. Like, Will of Osirian makes units obsec. That's just a great rule to have in your repertoire. Fateful Divergence is plus one command point. Ice Army really has no problem spending all of its CP. And uh, I really like Ghostwalk as a spell because it allows me to come out of reserves through Strategic Reserve or Deep Strike, anything like that, nine inches away, with a Fate Dice showing so I can use a six on a, on a charge roll. That's a six. I cast plus two from Ghostwalk, I'm up to an eight. And then no matter what my other die that I have to roll is, I automatically make the charge. I really don't want to live in the universe where I roll that six on a fake dice for a charge and then roll a one or two on the other one. I'm only at an eight. I need the nine. Spend a CP to reroll it. You have to reroll both of them. And then, you know, going for a nine on a CP reroll, that kind of sucks. I don't know. It feels like uh, it used to be the old way of life. Well, the old way doesn't work anymore, Paul. That's, that's one of the things you got to learn. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're mitigating it, and you figured out a way to get around it, which is which is awesome. Uh, right. How important are the Farseers to your Fate Dice manipulation? That's the other thing. Like A lot of my plans are kind of built around Fate Dice in the Psychic phase. Like I need a, a huge... I think every single game, all seven games of this tournament, I took either Psychic Ritual or Psychic Interrogation. And part of why my army is so good at is because I have three different casters on, on jet bikes, right? And they can run to a very specific spot to be in 24 inches of an enemy psyker or an enemy character, be within six inches of the center table, any of that stuff. And then cast their psychic power. And with fate dice manipulation, I can more reliably get the result three, which is sixes for psychic tests, which has made my psychic powers go better. Um, I can very reliably get a couple threes in there so I can make the psychic interrogation go off when I need it to. I can make doom go off when I need it to. And then still have enough in the bank to automatically pass quicken and get that character that I threw into a very specific dangerous spot, center of the board maybe, right back to safety. And a lot of times people would take assassinate against me. So I can't leave Farseers hanging out in the middle of the board. One, they're really critical to my damage and support. And two, they're points for my opponent when they kill him. So I can't afford to fail that quicken. I needed fate dice for that, so I want to give myself a lot of chances to roll those threes. Gotcha. We're going to go down some of the choices in the list because you know, there are a lot of great units in the Eldari book. So 
like finding the right combination to bring them into a list, generals are going to find multiple ways to make that happen. Yeah, for sure. There's, it's all about how you use it with this army. So with like the rangers, yeah, you've only got one unit of rangers here. You know, are they in there specifically? I guess why are they in there? They're in there because they do a lot for me. Honestly, I kind of wish I had two squads. They are a forward deploying unit, which I'm finding more and more and more useful in ninth edition because there's just alpha strikes everywhere. People are trying to get board control early. You want to infiltrate onto objectives and be out of site and force your opponent to do something about it. For terrain layouts, especially like in the U.S. Open series, you know you can kind of create staging grounds and back people up off of your. You know, de- yeah. your your zone to kind of develop your table. So I completely agree with everything you just said. There's a lot of turn one or even turn two deep strikes in the game, and then you want to have screens already in position and kind of protecting your army from outs- outside your deployment zone so your deployment zone doesn't actually get damaged at all. There's a million reasons to have forward deploying units. I wish I had two. Uh, they also give me scout the enemy, which is a really awesome secondary. I took it a couple times. It's about performing actions outside your deployment zone. Rangers do it better than everybody else. So I think they, do, they finish earlier than other units. Yeah, yeah. Specifically, that's how they do it better. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That's good. And you know, as far as like their the guns and stuff they can bring, they can also take out characters. And characters, especially, going to become more important. Yeah, you know, I mean, you wouldn't think of them. like the amount of snipers I have as a relevant amount of snipers. Sniping is not really a feature of my army, but you would be surprised. So I have a lot of hidden mortals in here, right? So. When swooping hawks, when they fly over you, and usually that's only 14 inches, they can spend a CP and roll one dice for every hawk in my unit, in this case nine, nine dice every four up as immortals, four and a half, five mortals. And then if I have fate dice showing and I get you know one for the advanced roll, again, that farseer manipulation, I can go 20 inches and bomb something. And when you get down to playing in the tangible side to 40k, the difference between 14 inches and 20 inches is your opponent can stay out of it and still participate in the game and threaten you and be on objectives if you're still back in your safety of your hidey hole back in your deployment zone like you can't threaten the midfield with a 14 inch move from inside your deployment zone castle with 20 you really can so your opponent can't get into charge range without getting into your flyover range so those mortals are a huge way of doing damage to your opponent when you otherwise wouldn't be able to i got the shroud runner strat they do mortals in either your opponent's movement or charge phase people are not used to taking mortals in their own turn so it really messes up people you've got psychic powers if i just want to i can turn the smite factory on a serpent has one cp serpent shields and if I roll fives on those fate dice, that's wound. Every six to wound is a mortal from these rangers, these shroud runners. So I can just spam mortals in the psychic in the shooting phase as well. That's pretty good. Uh, with the nine, uh, the swooping hawks, we had nine hawks in each unit. Is that just a point compromise there? Or? It's points. Yeah, okay. ten, ten would have just been better, but you know, ten would have also been twenty forty. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You, I mean, you got to spread it around somewhere. Like all this stuff, all the tech you have in this does have to come from somewhere. If I could do it again, I'd probably cut five guardians for the last two hawks. But who knows? <laughs> well, I was actually going next was the twenty guardians. I've used twenty guardians in the past for many reasons. One, there when you have twenty of anything in a unit, sometimes it's like a good vehicle for stratagems or a psyche power or something. Yeah, I actually don't really buff the guardians at all. You'll notice I don't have fortune in my army, which um, and I never even bothered protecting them. I could definitely put defense on these things, but I found like Eldar with these defense buffs will still just die. It's not even close. Very few armies are packing a lot of damage one these days to just kill guardians with. You know? Especially the way the army plays, like it's like I don't expose anything. The hawks go back behind walls. The Avengers go back behind a wall. Rangers and banshees and scorpions are hiding behind walls until they're traded away to the trade emperor. Um, so. Defense really isn't a factor, but they're they're amazing with guide. It's forty shots. They're amazing with blade storm. It's forty shots of real hits with guide. Doom is awesome on them. Jinx is great on the target. So offensively, it's forty shuriken shots, which you can buff up the same way as anything else in my army. But you know, one of the challenges when you're playing a buff or debuff based army like this is, I can doom a target. I can even jinx a different target. I can guide one of my own units to make them better. And that's really the end of it. After that, I'm just a pile of strength four. And that's great against one or two specific targets where I debuff you, buff myself up, and just isolate you. But if someone successfully pushes 2,000 points of their army in my face and says, you have to kill all of this right now, I realistically can't. And most factions are capable of presenting that challenge, um, barring terrain or things like that. And what the Guardians are here for and what they really offer me is pretty much every game... 
I put them in deep strike for one command point, and not even strategic reserve, which I can do for free with that webway gate. I put them in real deep strike, and they would. Uh, most of my opponents didn't even see this coming. I think John was the only person who really did, but they would come down in a giant conga line style thing, where maybe the like 15, 12 of them would be all in one concentrated ball, and then they could all shoot the same target. And then the other, let's say, eight of them were spread out. Max coherency. Or if I wanted all 20 of them in max coherency. That's like 60 inches. That's the entire yeah. width of the table. Love it. Use them to you know, screen out. all. Make, make people have to commit things. Like Nobody wants to be killing your guardians in this list. Well, exactly that. So what I could do is I'm deep striking nine inches away, this giant conga line of guardians, nine inches from your whole army. So imagine your army's in the middle of the board, and my army is on my side hiding behind walls. My turn two, I bring these guardians in. I have all my swooping hawks and dire avengers shooting you now. My swooping hawks and dire avengers go back behind their walls after they're done. So they've like doom jinxed a target, shot it with all this stuff. You, you took some casualties this turn. And now you're ready to retaliate. Now my guardians hit this charge out of reserve automatically between ghost walk and a fate dice. We have three farseers to help manipulate that. So as long as I got that charge die, automatically minimum nine inches in, I'm going to charge something, probably something you were using to screen. You know, something inconsequential, like, say, I don't know, a cyber wolf or whatever, ten cultists, some idiots you have that are just there and not really going to kill my guardians. A rhino, some useless tank. And then those guardians are going to all move 9 to 15 inches based on my charge results, and then pile and consolidate, and just stand 1.1 inches away from like every model in your army. So we're not in engagement range. I can do this in a way you can't really heroic me if I'm clever about it. And I'm move blocking your entire army. So now your next turn's offense is, instead of being barreling down my face with you know the remaining 1600 points saying like you have one more turn before i kill you all now i have two more turns you're going to spend your entire turn killing 20 guardians i'm going to guide doom jinx something again shoot it with hawks shoot it with avengers now you only have a thousand points and then when you try to stat check me with a thousand points i'll just kill enough it doesn't matter oh late sound of that i like it yeah guardian i know you mentioned that you know, i guess what's the difference between 18 or 15 and 20 guardians now, when you're when you're primarily using them for that, probably not much. Right, right. It's really the the width of my screen rather than like the damage or the utility of the models. Yeah. So going down the list, the webway gate, you know, it looks like you've got a lot of mobility bait packed into the, your unit itself. What would be the reason to have the webway gate? This thing is here because it can. It can just take objectives from an opponent really effectively. The thing that my army does well is it has my half of the board locked down. If you try to come on my half, I'm going to stall you with Guardians. I'm going to stall you with my Wave Serpent, Shroud Runners. All that's going to just stall you. While you're getting totally slaughtered by Swooping Hawks and Dire Avengers, Doom, Jinx, etc. The thing I don't do well is actually take your objectives from your side. So this is where we put the Webway Gate in. It can infiltrate. It's a weird fortification like that. And the format we were playing, we actually were allowed to replace a Turing feature um, of our choosing on our table half with the with our fortification. So I would usually replace like a crater or something in the middle of the board. This player plays terrain, so I would like set up a piece of terrain that I wanted to replace with the webway gate. In other formats, I would just player place terrain in such a way that my webway gate goes where it wants. And then, yeah, um, play terrain. Uh, you know, like I don't like that this is the case, but you know, it's like. You're always incentivized to be as selfish as possible during that process. Yeah, you got to make that concession if you're going to a tournament seriously with player place terrain. It's like you're not trying to create a pretty thematic board. You're trying to create an advantage. Yeah, and look, you know, be aware of the format when you're going into any event. You know, just be prepared for that and understand how players will be most likely, you know, engaging in that section of the deployment. So, you know, just an FYI more than anything. I would say I won a lot of games based on the fact that I understood player place terrain, especially with how my army relates to it and how my opponent's army related to it, but better than my opponent. Yep. Like I was able to against Chaos Knight armies completely move block. That, that is one hundred percent the case. Whoever is more got more more of that dialed in on that will increase their likelihood of winning that game, you know, by magnitude. So just FYI, be aware, no, you know, know what you're getting into when you get into that and then be prepared for it. Definitely. So I would just put this webway gate out in the middle, usually between like a central objective and a far objective on my opponent's side. Not like their home objective, but like maybe their expansion objective, something that's deep on their side they want to control. And then on turn two, I would 
get five Banshees, which I put in Strategic Reserve out. This is like a very much a move I did every game. Five Banshees would just come out of that Webway Gate, cast Obsec on them with Will of Azurian, charge them with a Fate Dice and Ghost Walk right onto that objective, kill some trash on it maybe, kill a real unit on it maybe, and uh, sometimes I wouldn't even charge. There was a moment where there was a War Dog on an objective, and it was five models Obsec, and I had a Webway Gate right next to it, so I just got five Banshees out, made them Obsec. My opponent was like, you going to charge, trying to get me to go in, do is like inconsequential damage to the war dog, lose a banshee in return, give up the objective. And I said, no, thank you. I just wanted to contest the objective automatically. And that's it's just very much play opening. You can show up close to the nine just away from your opponent with it, so it's really hard to do anything about it. Um, it's a really for 80 points, the fact that it creates so much opportunity to take advantage of in-game tactically, if you're tactically flexible, and helps you with your reserves. Before the game, because it gives you a discount on how much it costs to put in strategic reserve. Yep, I really like it. That was going to be my segue into actually talking about the CPs. Like, you know, you got a couple of different detachments here. What are you starting with? How many CPs are you starting with? I'm actually starting with three. Like I said, I pretty much reserve the Guardians into real deep strike every game. Usually put five Banshees into a strategic reserve for free every game with that Webley portal. And then with the two CP that I left, I would usually Phantasm. If I go first, it's pretty much... Hawks from the hiding spot in my terrain. I usually deploy as if I'm going to go second. The Hawks go from their defensive spot all the way up onto the line. And then turn one, I start bombing, shooting you, getting momentum on you. Because it's all about, if I have turn one, I know that I have to kill you a little bit because you have that bottom of turn primary advantage. So I really have to get ahead of that on the scoreboard. And if I go second, I just phantasm a lot of my stuff into reserve potentially make my footprint as small as possible because you can phantasm into strategic reserve and then come out via any of the board edges or the webway portal. So you get a lot of opportunities to still come in and interact with the game. Very hard to screen. So I'll make my footprint as small as it needs to be to avoid being shot for the first turn. And then I'll just continue on with my game plan and have bottom of turn control. Alrighty. Uh, and then, you know, we talk about phantasm, which is that beautiful ability. Like if there's another thing, if you have an ability to redeploy, um, it's actually, I know part of the topic of this show is being prepared and and knowing how to kind of engage effectively maybe after not participating in the competitive scene for a little while. And one of those things is know, having some effective questions to ask your opponent when you roll up to the table. And know that it's okay to ask your opponent questions such as, do you have any way to advance and charge? Do you have any way to redeploy after we've set up before the first turn roll? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those like are questions. Heroic, heroic interventions, redeploy, pick yourself up and put you in reserve, teleport, move twice. Anything that isn't just your standard space marine, I think you should be asking about. Yeah. And really, it is completely fine to ask your opponent those types of questions. Where it becomes a gray area of like, do you have any, uh, when would, what condition would you use a stratagem that you. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. I don't know if I'd get that deep, but just asking them if they have ways to do some, to break some kind of like fundamental rules of the game that most armies have to play by. Yeah, I, I basically, okay. I would, I'd like to instate my intent, like when I'm doing stuff, like I'm going to go over here. I'm going to make these Banshees OPSEC. I'm going to stand on your objective. Do you have any weird way to make this not work? Like, is there something I'm missing in this plan? And if the answer is Yes, then they're going to tell you. And if the answer is no, you go through with your plan. And then within four minutes after you do your plan, they're like, I have this weird stratagem which kills two of your banshees automatically. And it's like, it, we just had this conversation. Or this banner turns off your objective secured. You know, there's right, right. some stuff like, like that. That's what you're trying to ask for. And you, yeah, I want to ask you, and I guess a, a way that leaves room for them to answer, because you can't ask every specific question infinitely. You'll, you'll never do anything effective that way. But you can say, this is what I'm trying to do. Do you have an ability that will mess with it? And in the interest of being a gentleman as well as a sportsman, people should just tell the truth. I, well, think. I, I think that they do. And I guess well, I want to establish that it is like really okay for anyone to be asked these types of questions, you know, without belaboring the game, of course, you know, but to, uh, to, to ask some very basic things that, you know, like this phantasm and redeploy or whatever, that's very important. And if you got taken by surprise by it, which obviously they want to surprise you, and sometimes they're, they're still going to use it, even though you have kind of let your be best lay plan, but you've at least tried to close some of that knowledge gap between what you might not know about their codex because you've asked a couple of fundamental questions at the beginning of the game. 
Yeah, definitely. Just especially with this army, I would say more so than every every army needs to ask questions. When you're playing an army that's made of tissue paper and designed to not be hit, when you get a little piece of data wrong and you are all of a sudden taking firepower or getting charged, it's not like you can roll your way out of it or it'll just be all right if you roll well or your opponent whiffs. So you're you're gonna die. You're gonna die five times over. They're like, wounded me on twos. I'm yes. now putting my bottles back in the box. Like These people are geared to kill Tyranids and Dreadnoughts and Custodies, and you're just a little toughness three elf. Don't try to pretend you're that. Uh, so with, you know, talking about the stratagems and having Phantasm in your back pocket, okay, you make it through, you, you make it through the deployment, you're now getting onto the game, you've had your first turn, you've got, you know, just a, a deep four CP in your pocket, Oh, I can I can burn CP, Paul. So it really it depends on my turn's goals. I would say a lot of playing this army is banking CP in specific turns so that you can unload all of them for these crazy four, five, six CP combos for offense. So the strats I would use like every single turn were the flock high over the hawk flyover strat. I think it's grenade pack. This is where I move fourteen to twenty inches depending on my advance rule or a fate die, and then do mortal wounds. Um, this is just so good in Swift Strikes. It's part of the reason to play Swift Strikes as a craft world type. It makes the Hawks so impossible to hide from angle-wise because they're moving 20, then shooting you, instead of moving 14 and shooting you. And then they're moving 20 and bombing you. So really, like tough stuff just goes down. You can just free kill Abaddon by doing movement phase mortals. It's just so good. And then the other one I say I use almost all the time is action and cast, actually. You can do a psychic action and then still cast a power. So I would do things like, typically my my one Farseer on foot, Guide and Focus Will, would guide a unit and cast Focus Will. And Focus Will would either go on whichever caster I felt would be most important that wasn't going to use Fate Die that turn. And then usually Doom and Fateful, Fider- Fateful Divergence Farseer he usually wants to cast both of those powers, plus one command point and doom, so we're doing that. Last guy, he's kind of situational. Like, Will of Ozergan, I'm not always making stuff OPSEC. Ghostwalk, I'm not always charging out of reserve. So that guy's typically running to the middle of the board and casting Psychic Ritual. But sometimes I would want to run to the bo- middle of the board, cast Psychic Ritual, and make something OPSEC, and that would be with that strat. Or sometimes my Warlock wants to run 18 inches out um, so he can jinx something that I'm about to shoot at and cast Psychic Ritual in the same breath. So that's where my Warlock would spend that strat. Cast Psychic Ritual, then cast Jinx, then get the hell out of there. And that's where we uh, like cast Focus Will on that guy to make both those spells more likely to go off and be hard to deny. So those are the two go-to strats. But then there's turns where I'm banking my plus one command point every command phase. I'm banking my plus one for my spell. I'm walking into turn three with like six CP. And that's where we're doing the Hawk Fly over Mortals. We're going to do Bladestorm on either the 20 Guardians or the 10 Dire Avengers. Kind of depends if I need more shots or if I want the extra AP that the Dire Avengers will pack. I'm going to be doing Fire and Fade probably. Those Dire Avengers love to get out of that Serpent, shoot the stuff out of something, and then 2CP right back behind a wall. I don't like rolling that battle focus. It just introduces a chance for dice to screw you. And an army is calculated as this. You want? I'd rather spend the extra CP. So the guaranteed battle focus is what you're saying. Well, the fire and fade is just flat seven inches. Guaranteed yeah. battle focus is is just a reroll these days. That got nerfed too. So I have to if I want a guaranteed movement, I got to spend two CP for it. So I will do that. So blade storm, hawk fly over fire and fade. That's four CP. You know, we'll one CP cast an action that turn to make sure jinx and warp bridge will go off or something. I mean, you're spending 5 CP in that turn before CP reroll. I'd like to leave one in the tank for Baharat to always be able to stand back up. That's pretty important. Yeah, and also the, the Shroud Runner Shroud. I use that a fair bit, especially I would tell people about it, which is uh, in the movement phase or the charge phase. You pop it, your opponent takes D3 mortal wounds, and, and they're minus D3 to their movement or their charge. You can really mess up people's plans by just saying this is going to screw your charge up. They won't even go for it. I dig it. So lots of options and taking advantage of all that uh, mobility and lethality. And I know we've kind of weaved around some of the secondary choices, you know, because the list was intentionally built to to have some of these things available to you. But what are your go-to secondaries? Pretty much every game I took Psychic Ritual or Psychic Interrogation really depended on my opponent's ability to hide his characters and if they had denies or not. Ritual caps out at a 12, but I only have to do it three times. So if they have a lot of denies... 
I'd rather only have to get it off three times instead of five times to, to get a good score. And then psychic interrogation is great if they had like foot characters that just don't deny stuff or a lot of characters like guard. I took it in path once, I think, that because I have a webway gate, it plays differently. I have to be within three inches of my webway gate at the start of my command phase when there's no enemies within three inches of, the end of my webway gate. On the right deployment zones, you can pull that off. Um, I took a Wrath of Cain once. That's a secondary where you get one point if you kill a unit and shooting with one of your aspect war units with all your hawks and your dire avengers this is very easy um one point if you kill a unit in combat with a different aspect warrior unit so that's your banshees your scorpions baharoth can all kill stuff in combat pretty well and then if you do them in the same battle round you'll get four points so you time that effectively you can really get like 10 to, to 14 points on it that's a great one um i did a lot of banners my army's not too great at retrieving Nephilim data. I can do a lot of shooting and actioning, but I always want to be in my half of the board. Oh, really? What? Yeah. I guess, yeah, I know you're about to get into that, but I would think that with being able to jump around and the webway gate and some other stuff, that maybe that was more of a, an attractive option to you. I can do it. Like, I have lots of units. They can go all over the board and they can action. So you would think I'd be great at it. I think I am great at scoring it, but I would be great, terrible at surviving after I scored it. And the way this army wins games is by shooting you for five turns relentlessly by always going back to safety. I think a lot of room for error in this list is trying to get aggressive with it. And, and a lot of it's letting people come to you and kill them and then go back to safety. If I have to go to my opponents, have to get Nephilim data or engage in all fronts or behind enemy lines, all secondaries I'm fast enough to do. Uh, it's it's kind of counterintuitive to the actual strategy, which is stay alive. Uh, yeah, stay alive for as long as you possibly can. Do you do you make it to the end of the game with a bunch of models left? I the only game I didn't have the majority of my stuff alive, like I'm talking like upwards of 1,500 points alive, was the game I lost. Was John got into me played against teammate John Lennon, who ended up going on to win the tournament. He got into me on turn three and really just messed me up because, like we talked about, you make movement errors, you just get your opponent gets to you, you are just toughness three elves. Yeah, I guess constantly being on the lookout for that kind of stuff. And, and players, that's kind of the thing is like how to put you in a position where you can't get away. Yeah, yeah. Most armies aren't even capable of it. It's so fast and so controlly, but Tyranids are one of the armies that are definitely fast enough, especially that Kraken version that's been doing well. The Spore Mines and the Flyrins. Oh, I hate Tyranids, Paul. <laughs> I can see that playing in a Tyranid-rich environment, uh, i.e., you know, where you live. Yeah, yeah. Don't can get sometimes it. be tough. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this has been great. I said to hear about this. I guess let's talk a little bit more about again how to. Uh, you know, honestly, ease back into it or whatever, but if you have not decided to break out this stuff competitively, and we've talked about a lot of tricks, a lot of things, but I also will like to point out that a lot of it is familiarity with your own book, the thing that you actually have in your hand you know, while you're preparing this army. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I really enjoy Eldar, especially their play style right now. It, it, it's kind of, I like playing that KG defensive style. It really speaks to me with that with Eldar. I think it's important when you're getting back into the game to do it, even if you're going to do it competitively, even if you're competing at the highest levels, or whatever level. Don't just chase the meta. Play something you really enjoy. You'll be able to squeeze more juice out of that fruit. You'll have a lot more fun and reward from doing it. And, you know, I lost the game. I played John. He got me good with a matchup that was one of my hardest going into it, and I knew it. And... It's just life, you know? It's it's totally cool. I would say it was a really healthy way to enjoy 40K, and it was still very successful. You know, I got second place. Not bad. Yeah, and I mean, you also, you've got a bunch of, uh, I guess, years and years of experience to fall back on. You you do, you are still... You know, very. You've been. You play the game. You know, we 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 play the game. Warhammer forty thousand. It's just how do you how do you leave that from playing casually or or you know for a, a video or something into a a tournament. You know, getting out there playing competitively where the where the result may matter to you that day, kind of thing. And having being very familiar with what your army can do is uh, like a a real contributor to the success. Absolutely, and you have yeah. that. You may not have every codex and every book at your dis at your disposal, uh, but you have your codex right there in your lap or on your bedside table or in electronic format or whatever. And so you can really know the capabilities of your units, and that will carry you a long way. 
It really will. I played against Chaos Knights three times, Leagues of Votan. Leagues of Votan are brand new. I didn't even know half his units did. I barely knew what the models were. Chaos Knights, so much of their codex is has been a mystery to me because all of it is like turn-based mechanics that just change based on what your opponent's trying to do in the game. It's a very complicated book for being a knight army. And so much of it is shrouded in this veil of mystery, unless you yourself really have mastered that codex. And if you just stick to your own game plan, your fundamentals, it almost doesn't matter what your opponent is doing on their half of the board. Yeah, knowing when to pull out some of these stratagems and how to uh, take advantage of of everything that your army offers is, um, yeah, it's huge. That's something that you would think that every player comes equipped with, but not every player does. I mean, heck, I'll even say that, you know, telling myself a little bit here, there are times when, you know, I re- like, crap, I did, I forgot I had that stratagem or something. You know, it's that yeah. ability on the day sheet or whatever. I, oh, it does just an effect this guy. I, I could target a unit, that kind of thing. There's, yeah, I mean, there's, all, there's those so types of things uh, come up more often than you would expect, and it's preventable. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, well, this has been a great first episode of this two-part series. Again, if you're just joining us, this is part one of a two-part show. If you are just uh, listening to this part and have not subscribed yet, I want, I encourage you to subscribe. We're going to have a real fun time in part two. Uh, but if you are just uh, only joining us here, please leave us five-star reviews. Like, share, and subscribe. That is a way to like show support for the show. Other people will find the show based off of your action there. It means a whole lot to us, those comments. We love seeing the comments as well. Let us know what you've thought about this discussion. Let us know if you've been on the fence uh, about getting into the competitive scene because we tell you, it's amazing over here, and we love it. We'd love to hang out with you while you're doing it. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely. Been a blast. Me too, Paul. I'm super excited for part two. What are we going to be talking about? Uh, well, we're going to be talking about one, I guess, you know, maybe changes you'd make along your list and also about the ways that you interacted and fought against um, like other top armies and lists out there right now, because there are some, some really top dogs out there list wise, as far as like what they bring and the challenges they present on the tabletop and you're going to encounter them at every tournament you go to, or at least most, I'd say, especially if you plan on uh, doing really well and then how to, you know, circumvent that, get around that, how to win. Yeah, you know how to, how to actually win those games when you get to them. Well, I'm super excited to chat about it, Paul. I'll see you there. All right, see you in a minute. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.